Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Anna Luberoff, who is working in the California Bay Area in San Francisco with a really exciting, to me anyway, organization, and you'll hear how exciting it is for her, called Community Grows. And I'm going to ask Anna to, to fill in clearly from a first person's perspective, a lot more about the organization. But from what I know about it, they have a really, really strong focus in um, education, especially of young people. And what excites me so much about it is one, it's working with communities which um, often do not get to receive uh, exposure to gardening and nature courses and this sort of thing, because these are people who are living um, sometimes in subsidized housing. Sometimes these are communities of color where, you know, they're just getting kind of skipped over. And as we talk about the regenerative movement and growing that, I think it's very easy for people who are just kind of glancing in to get this impression that this is really kind of maybe an elite, maybe it's, maybe it's something you need to feel like you've got the spare time to consider and to take a position on. And so, you know, over the course of the, of the, the interviews I've been doing and will continue to be doing on Designers of Paradise, I really want to um, profile as many uh, organizations and activities and activists and practitioners who are counter to that illusion as we possibly can, because it's very important that we start to get a sense of how inclusive this movement is, how many different kinds of communities are touched. And the second thing that really excites me about this is that while you can speak to people who are involved with organic or permaculture, or maybe they call it regenerative agriculture, on the one hand, they seem to be somewhat separate conversations to speaking with people who are doing community organizing, who are working directly with with learners, with young people, who are fulfilling that vision of possibility and, and promoting movement in the direction of regenerating communities. And that 
by necessity involves regenerating the potential of the individual. So in this project, where Community Grows is working directly with school gardens and gardening and, and um, basically building awareness around that natural world and how we can work with it, with communities of, of young people who might not otherwise have as many opportunities as the kind of poster you know, poster farm folks, um, that those two worlds come together. So by regenerating, uh, by following regenerative practices with, with soil, with land, with, gar with growing, with gardening, we're also regenerating individuals and we're, we're using this as a tool to regenerate entire communities. And the reverse is true. Projects that involve gardening and um, a sense of food, capability and sovereignty, you know, you can take care of yourself because you know how to grow something. Um, while those may be put into place frequently as community development projects, um, because you have to follow organic practices to do that well, you're also doing the, the work of the regenerative farmer. So beautiful, beautiful juxtaposition. Welcome, Anna. I'm very excited as you can hear. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. That was a great introduction. I feel like you really captured a lot of what I think is so cool and important about this organization. Um, yeah, would you like me to just sort of speak a little bit to yeah, an overview it, of what we do? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Give us, give, us, give us some overview. Yeah, so Community Grows is a really fantastic and very interesting organization. We're in San Francisco. Um, we're located in the Fillmore area, so we're between the Hayes Valley and I would say Lower Pack Heights, um, which is a community that is historically a community of color. Um, it was once considered to be the Harlem of the West. Um, it's definitely sort of a center of um, African-American community specifically, but there are many other communities of color that are also located there. Um, and it's also a historically marginalized community that has really suffered from a lot of the effects of um, drug use, violence, crime, uh, gentrification, um, and is a community that is really, really strong and also really disproportionately impacted by a lot of the things that make it hard for us to live in this world. Um, so Community Grows itself um, started 23 years ago, actually, as a project that was based around revitalizing a neighborhood park. Um, so in the 70s, essentially, what happened was there was this park that was in the neighborhood. There was a huge fire in an apartment building. It burned down. And as part of this sort of large community regenerative process, um, folks were interested in building a park there. And then everything about community growth has kind of grown from there. And that park has eventually became a learning garden for a local elementary school. And moving that to today where we have two elementary schools that we work in where we offer garden classes. We have this park which has a community garden in it. And then we also have a youth development program that works with teenagers from the neighborhood. Um, so everything that we do is really based in what folks want and are interested in seeing from people who live and are, have a stake in the neighborhood. And then um, what we're trying to create, I would say, is both a sense of place and a sense of ownership, um, but also trying to create a green space where folks can come and feel the healing power of nature that I think a lot of us get to experience um, and are getting 
away from as we move towards living in more of an urban environment. Um, does that help you a little bit there? Like, yeah, you, meant, you mentioned, you else mentioned, that, yeah. well, it, it, I, I add, add one word to that. You mentioned sure. giving people a sense of place and a sense of ownership. Yeah. But I think there's also a really critical factor here, which I would call agency. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, that, so yeah. for, for those listening that may not have come across it in that context, agency really is your power to make something happen. Yeah, and I would say that the, what has made community growth so successful is that the sense of agency that folks who work with us feel and are able to feel as a result of working in gardens that we help to steward, but that we do not in any way own. Um, and that I really think, especially for young people, having a place that you can come that feels like your garden that's in your neighborhood that you help to grow is creates such a sense of self of power of ownership um, that is really, really beautiful and important. Um, it's, it's a fantastic process and it reliably occurs every time, which yes. is phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal in this world. Yeah, and that's really what we're trying to create, especially in the sense that we work with young people. So when I say that, what I mean is that we have K through five, um, so elementary schoolers, and then we also work with youth 13 to 19. Um, so wherever you fall on that spectrum, there's some place for you, even working with adults, but specifically we work with youth, um, there's a place for you here. Um, and that's really what we're trying to emphasize and create for folks. And I noted also that at least in some situations, the older kids are teaching the younger kids. Yes. Can you so talk that about is that? A, yeah, absolutely. So we have a program called the BEATS, which stands for Band of Environmentally Educated and Employable Teens. Um, I love it. And mostly, yeah, I know. Isn't that great? Um, I did not come up with that name. I actually wish, I don't know where that name came from, but it's great. Anyway, um, so that is mostly youth from the neighborhood. And that program was actually born out of essentially a need for youth in the neighborhood to have employment. Um, and so it is a paid internship that folks can come and do. Um, and a lot of times they're kids who have come through our youth programs and are now older and looking for ways to stay involved. Um, and what that program does is it provides youth with both job and life skills, so everything from learning how to write a resume to um, learning how to grow your own food, and then as well talking about food and environmental and social justice. Um, but one of the huge things that the, all of those kids get to do is to help out in our garden classes. So there's opportunities for them to help steward our gardens, but also if they want to, to work with the younger kids in the garden. So for example, this year, um, I had a beat who came and helped me in one of my after school classes. And it was just really fun to get to see her out there hanging out with the kids and the kids hanging out with her and kind of like seeing their experiences mirrored with each other. Uh -huh. um, that was really, really fun. Um, yeah, there's like an everyday magic in that, isn't there? Yes. I mean, there is an everyday magic in everything that, I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes my job so amazing is that every single day I get to see a kid feel so excited about being outside or about nature or making some connection to something, whether it's like, this reminds me of home or it reminds me of the place that I came from, or 
it reminds me of this other time that I was in the garden last week or whatever that might be just like seeing those sparks go off and seeing kids like smell something and take a deep breath is just so it makes me so happy and I can really see the impact that that has um whether that's kids who are k through five or kids that are older youth that are older yeah it's it's fun it's it's such it's it's like a rich honor I think to be to be able to be in that position and and provide support and and see the results in a, in a in the shining yeah you know, I mean it sounds trite but it's true you know like the shining eyes <laughs> of discovery you know it's it's just a, it, yeah magical is the word that keeps coming back for me yeah it is absolutely magical um, I feel deeply honored to be able to be a part of that process yeah it's um, fin- it is such it, a privilege so so you've mentioned a little bit about what you're doing. Um, and could you t- explain a little further about where you fit within the larger uh, Community Grows organization and maybe something of the nature of that organization, too? Because you, you'd mentioned that it was important for people to, to understand just how, how many are involved and, you know, the time span it's been in place and, you know, the kind of the extent of the program and, and the concept. Yeah, so I am the garden programs manager, which essentially means that I oversee all of our gardens that are in the neighborhood, Um, whether that's providing technical support or providing support for our other garden educators. Um, And then I also work at one of our two elementary schools. Uh, So we are at two elementary schools, uh, one that is called John Muir Elementary School, the other one is Rosa Parks. Um, And I am the garden educator there. So I get to work with all of the kids in that school. I teach all of the in-school garden classes that happen there. Um, And then in terms of the way that the organization is broken down, we are a very small organization. Uh, There are right now, I think there's four of us. Um, So we have an executive director. Her name is Kelly. She's wonderful. And then there's myself and another woman named Sora. And we are the two garden educators that provide in-school garden education classes to youth. Um, So that's John Muir Elementary School and Rosa Parks Elementary School. And then the two of us also teach uh, several after-school programs during the school year and during the summer, um, where we'll work with youth that are in, that uh, come to us through various community partners, whether that's the YMCA or other um, churches, schools, other local community organizations that we work with. Um, and then at this time, we don't have somebody who's overseeing the BEATS program, but we are looking forward to hiring somebody for that in the fall. So that is our youth development program. Um, and so that person will run that aspect of the program. Um, and then I'm trying to think, then we have two AmeriCorps volunteers who help us with everything else. So we are, uh, we're scrappy, we're small, um, and because of that, we're extremely rooted in the community that we work with. So our office is located in the African-American Arts and Culture Complex, um, which is basically like a, how would I explain it? Um, It's a building that houses a lot of legacy organizations in the area. And I think that that really speaks to sort of who we are and how we have come to find a place in this neighborhood. and everything that Community Growth has done, whether that is building this park or starting this program at Rosa Parks or any of our elementary school classes, all of that was born out of um, folks in the neighborhood helping us to, or I'm saying that wrong. 
all of that was born out of this experience of, okay, we want, we have this park. Um, folks in the neighborhood are working with us to help create this park. There's a local elementary school down the road. The people at the elementary school reached out to us and said, hey, can you guys help us figure out a way to have classes for kids at this elementary school? And then somebody else said, hey, there's this other elementary school down the road. Let's work with them. And so I really want to emphasize that every single one of the programs that we have came from a place of what is going on in the neighborhood and what do folks in the neighborhood want to see. Um, we are not in any way interested in coming in and saying, hey, we think that you guys should have a park and like we think that you would benefit from having green space um, and we want to create this for you. That is so, yeah, that's just completely the opposite. It's actually the reverse. Um, when Community Grows was first started, when we started working in the 70s, the um, original park, Koshland Park, was created through a huge community organizing process. 3,500 people were polled. There were 400 questionnaires that went out. Um, and I think that really cemented that, that beginning, really cemented for us this place of being a part of this community and really listening to what it is that people want and would like to see for them, for their own community, not what we think they should have. Yeah, I think responsive design is the best. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know I'm a, I, I'm a, I, uh, it's so hard for me to kind of like put this all into one cohesive narrative, um, but it is in a way not cohesive, um, that it's sort of this, we're here and we're trying to listen and understand what it is that folks are impacted by and that is changing all the time. Um, and what is working and what is not working, it changes all the time. Sure, um, sure, of course. Yeah. Um, if someone, if, if someone listening to this um, were to get really excited and inspired, say they're on the other coast, say they're in the heartland somewhere, mm -hmm. but they, they're thinking, you know, we could use that something like that here where we are. What kind of advice would you give them um, in terms of ways to get started? Clearly, clearly listening is, is a starting point. But what, what, yeah. more could you, what more could you offer as, as advice? I would say, I mean, clearly listening. But I think that if you are a person who is living somewhere and you think like, wow, I would really love to have a park there or I would really love to create some kind of a school garden. Um, I think the first step in any process like that is talking to anybody who lives in the neighborhood who you think might conceivably have a stake. Um, so whether that is the church down the street or whether that is the housing development that's three blocks away or whether that's the merchants that have shops that are um, a mile away. Just anybody who you think might potentially want to use that space or might be interested in using that space specifically with an eye towards people that you might not think of. Um, and I think talking to people and hearing whether that's something that they would also be interested in would really, really help. Um, I think if there hadn't been an interest in building a park in our neighborhood, um, it would not have happened if we hadn't gone around and said and talked to people and folks had been really invested in this process, it wouldn't have happened because this kind of thing doesn't happen and it doesn't stay rooted in the community that it's in for 23 years without that kind of investment. Were there big surprises to you? I mean, you, may, you mentioned speaking to people you might not imagine have a stake. 
Um, were there other big surprises in that process? Or um, even, even ongoing? I, mean, I wasn't a part of the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, there's, there's, there's a narrative that comes with an organization, right? Yeah. There's, so like stuff you've of heard course. maybe or favorite stories that still yeah. get trotted out. Um, so one of my favorite stories so I think the thing that the things we often don't think of are that these things take so long um, and that this is a process that has been going on for many many years and absolutely did not happen overnight and I think as a result of trying to get this program to happen trying to get this part to happen even with all of this community investment there's still we had to learn how to work with the city. We had to learn how to work with the local government. We had to learn how to work with the police. Uh, we had to learn how to work with anybody who was involved. And not everybody, when you're gathering the input of an entire neighborhood, of course not everybody is going to be on board. Um, and I don't think that that's a surprise, but I think it's a reality that there is a lot of bureaucracy that can be involved in this kind of thing. Um, but one of my favorite stories of sort of just like the level of bureaucracy and sort of craziness that can happen but that does eventually lead to something beautiful is that there is surrounding Coughland Park which is the original park that Community Grows started with um, is this peace wall and what that is is there are all of these tiles that are on a mural that surround the whole park that are all drawings of from youth in the community of what peace means to them. Um, and that happened as a partnership with the San Francisco Zen Center. And essentially what happened was uh, there were, I'm trying to think, I think it was, it was a seven year long project um, working with 25 different youth agencies. Um, and every week for seven weeks, kids would come, they would draw pictures of different emotions, fear, anger, doubt, disappointment, and then finally, um, it all culminated in, in creating them, creating drawings representing their best selves and what peace means to them. Um, and those got turned into tiles. But in order for the tiles to actually be mounted on the wall, we had to work with the we had to work with the park and the city and the Koshland family, who uh, are very kind, wonderful supporters of the park. Um, but they weren't all of those people weren't super excited about having this kid's artwork just up there, even though it was this really amazing, beautiful thing that was being created. So we ended up working with a local artist um, whose name I believe is Justine Tot Tarotsky. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. She's an award-winning tile maker. Anyway, um, it took seven years for the, the idea of having, wow, we could have these beautiful tiles that represent what peace means to kids who live in the neighborhood who get to come to this park that is really this place of peace. Um, having to work with everybody who might conceivably have a stake in that, whether that is how the park is gonna look or if it's gonna be here forever, or do we really wanna endow this or whatever that might mean. Um, trying to get from point A to point B can be a seven year long process, but eventually the peace wall did happen. It's incredibly beautiful. We're extremely grateful to the Koshland family um, for helping support this park um, and to everybody like the everybody who's helped make that process happen. But that's a favorite story that I have just from like, okay, we just want to put some tiles on a wall that represents something that's really beautiful and like all of the factors that might potentially go into that Phenomenal. that did eventually turn into something that's really, really beautiful and I think really represents in the end kind of what we're all about. Does that make that so? Does that make sense? It to, to um, me, what, to me, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. I, I've been there before. Um, 
seven years is kind of like a natural cycle. It's a frustrating one, but it's, it's you know, things come in seven sometimes. Yeah. Um, have, have you got a story about some really unexpected um, development or capability that has evolved from this, from this project? Something that you, you might not mm. have necessarily seen a direct line, but pop, there it is. Something that I wouldn't necessarily have seen a direct line. Um, hmm. It's difficult because the more you, the more you're immersed yeah. in it, the, you know, the, the more you would see that, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like I'm almost not surprised anymore um, <laughs> that there are so many different things that can pop up. Um, I'm trying to think. This one feels it sound when I say it now it actually sounds very direct but it when I originally um when I started working here it wasn't something that I thought of at all um which is almost embarrassing when I'm about to tell this story but the uh, Rosa Parks Elementary where I work um is a Japanese bilingual school so it sits kind of closer to the lower Pacific Heights which is generally speaking a large Japanese community um so it's a Japanese bilingual school. And as a result of that, there are Japanese language teachers who are at the school. So some of the school is Japanese bilingual. Some of it is not actually. But anyway, it did not occur to me at all that the Japanese language teachers might be interested in using the garden for Japanese language and teaching. I just sort of thought like, wow, we have this garden. Great. Like Japanese language is happening. There's this like really strong culture at this school um, of there's this really strong culture at the school of um, Japanese cultural events. Obviously, there's all this Japanese language learning and cultural learning that's happening at school, but it didn't occur to me at all that there could be a collaboration between the garden and the Japanese bilingual program. Um, and I was really surprised when I started working at the school that a lot of parents um, came up to me and were really, really, really excited about trying to create some kind of a collaboration. Um, so I did actually end up meeting with all of the Japanese language teachers and talking about ways that we could potentially work together in the future. And we're still sort of looking at what that might look like, but I just would never have thought of that. I sort of, it occurred, I was like, well, you know, we have like this garden program, we have this Japanese program and great, everybody gets to have garden, but it never occurred to me that the two could be connected. Um, which is, sounds so insane now because of course they're connected, but I was really surprised by that. Yeah, I, I, um, I, could, I could see yeah. that. I could definitely see the surprise and I can see also the inevitability of it. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, Back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. Today we're chatting with Anna Luberoff from Community Grows. Did you 
do, do you feel in terms of your own development and your kind of course of your progression, say, um, since university or, or maybe you were in programs like this in, in secondary school and high school as well, I don't know, but did you feel there was kind of a, um, a clear track that led you to this kind of work or did it take you by surprise somehow? How did that happen? So I don't feel surprised at all that this is where I ended up. Um, I think it almost feels like predetermined. Um, it's sort of surprising to me that I'm still doing it, um, but it's it's it makes sense when I think about sort of who I was as a kid and where this has taken me. My perspective on it has changed a lot. Um, I was definitely a kid that could just could not be inside. Uh, I just always wanted to be outside. I was obsessed with animals. I loved plants. Um, I just really wanted to be outside all the time. If it was ever a sunny day, I was like immediately out the door. Um, and as a teenager, I ended up working at a educational farm that was near my parents' house in Boston, which is where I'm from. Um, and got so excited about the idea of sort of the intersection of teaching and being outside. So getting to work with kids and be a facilitator of the same kind of experiences that I love to have and sort of sharing my ex excitement about that with other people. Because to me, getting to be outside and getting to touch plants and like look at animals is the greatest thing that I could possibly be doing with my time. Uh, it just makes me so incredibly happy. So that happened when I was in high school and then I went to college. I went to Smith College in Western Massachusetts and I sort of assumed that at some point I would kind of grow out of it um, and that I, would, <laughs> like, that I would still be able to find the same kind of fulfillment with gardening and having lots of animals around and being in a place that Smith is in a relatively rural part of the state um, that I was like, well, I'll go off and I'll live on a farm and I'll have a day job and I'll probably be a teacher. Um, and I just could not handle being inside. Um, I really, every single summer that I was in college, I would sort of have this moment of like, well, I should probably get a real job. Um, and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll work on a farm. Um, so that kind of led me in a lot of different ways, eventually to an interest in urban agriculture, which is actually how I ended up on the West Coast, um, is that uh, the Bay Area is a huge, huge place for urban agriculture um, that I started to get interested in kind of like how do we take this incredible experience of getting to be outside and getting to grow food into places where there isn't as much opportunity for that. So I came out here kind of with an interest in that and actually became incredibly disillusioned with urban agriculture um, for a lot of reasons, um, partially because I just don't think that urban agriculture is going to solve, um, it's not going to solve a hunger problem in a city, let's just say. It's not that there's lots of, it's, it, it serves a purpose, but that is not, it, the purpose of urban agriculture is not to grow more food for people who live in cities. It is to create green spaces that have an inherent value. Um, and I also became really disillusioned with it because it led me to ask the question of who is this for? Um, and a lot of times I felt like urban agriculture projects around the world and especially in cities are created by often white people who are taking over neighborhoods that are historically neighborhoods of color um, and really feeling like 
those spaces are often really exclusionary um, and not wanting to be a part of that process. So I kind of went way back in the other direction, started doing a lot of production agriculture, feeling like that was a place that uh, felt good to me um, of knowing that I wanted to grow food. Um, and I was working, I moved back to Boston, I was working for the Food Project, which is a really amazing organization that does kind of youth development and food justice work, trying to like stay a little bit more on the production side um, and really trying to focus on how do we get more good food to people in cities who potentially can't afford it. Um, and really felt like I missed the connection of working with kids every day. Um, I really, really missed the aspects of urban agriculture that made me feel like there was some kind of a connection that I felt so isolated being out in the field and I loved being able to grow 400 heads of cabbage, but it really was hard to not get to see where they were going um, or ever really getting to have that kind of a personal connection. So I sort of found myself back here and I really got excited about Community Grows because I was looking for an organization that I felt like was doing the things that I felt excited about in a way that felt right. Um, which is not to say that Community Grows is always getting it right. We definitely are not. There is any nonprofit that says that they are getting it right is just, <laughs> just doesn't have enough critical perspective. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of things about Community Grows that we are getting right. And I think that that's really what draws me to this work is that I felt like, I was like, okay, I understand now that there's a place for urban agriculture that can be really community motivated, that can be community uh, driven that can be responsive to community and can provide a place where youth can come and have the same kind of excitement that I feel every day. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up here. And I really love that about this organization. And I think it's one of the things that makes it so unique and so different from any other, either urban agriculture organization or just school garden organization. Um, there are lots of school garden organizations that are all about like, creating places for kids to learn science and creating places um, like more school gardens everywhere. And I think that that's wonderful, but I also really love that the garden is not just a place for learning science, it's a place for learning about yourself and learning about the world beyond just what makes plants grow. Yeah. 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 I Thank see you that. for letting me talk. <laughs> that was a lot. I know. <laughs> and that, it was, um, it was a really nice journey to follow. Um, if, if I were, or, you know, a listener were sitting in the, the Bay area or maybe in San Francisco itself and wanted to find a way to get involved with community grows, is that fairly straightforward or are you maxed out in terms of your capacity to deal with, with people just showing up or like, what would you recommend to people who wanted to, to engage with you? Yeah, come volunteer with us. Uh, we have lots of volunteer days. We can always use volunteers, especially if you're if you want to work with kids. We love having volunteers come and help out in our classes, um, and just come and check us out. It's a public, so Coshland is a public park. Anybody can come and walk through it. Um, and I think that when you see it and feel it, the work kind of speaks for itself. Um, and they can go to absolutely, yeah. And yes. they can go, go to communitygrows.org. Yep, exactly. Okay. Communitygrows.org. Yeah, and our email is info at communitygrows.org. That is the best way to reach us. And I certainly hope some people will be. Um, yeah. Cast your, do me a favor, cast your mind 15 or 20 years into the future. 
and think about the work that you've been involved with and particularly the people who've been uh, beneficiaries of that work and the mm-hmm. shape, the shape, the con- maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe the conceptual shape, if you can imagine that, of the community and the lives of some of those people, 15 to 20 years down the road, things have all gone really well, um, strength building upon strength. Where do you think that could take the community? Oh, wow. Uh, it's so hard to say because I'm not a part of the community. I help to serve it, but I, it's hard to speak on behalf of what I think might happen. Um, my hope is that there will be many more either personal urban agriculture projects that folks have started in the neighborhood, whether that is kids that I've worked with that now 15 or 20 years later are starting to grow their own gardens. Um, So I really, that is something that I really hope for. Um, But what I really also hope for is that Koshland continues to be a place that folks can come um, and feel that I, even 20 years from now, I really hope that Koshland is still a place that folks from anywhere can come and experience a little bit of, of green in the city and that we'll still be able to work with the kids who come through John Muir um, and still be able to work with whoever it is that uh, wants to be a part of the work that we do. Um, I know that's a really kind of a vague answer. I really, um, I think there's great potential for urban agriculture, especially in San Francisco. Um, and I really hope to see a lot of folks who have come through our programs start to build their own, whatever that might mean to them. Um, whether that's their own gardens or their own community agriculture projects, um, just creating creating a really vibrant sort of neighborhood food system. That's what I really dream. I like, um, I, and I think it's, I think it's already happening. I, I like the, the community food system better than urban agriculture as, as a handle for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I think community to, food system is better. Yes. <laughs> you could start to picture it, you know, you could start to almost taste the carrots. Um, urban agriculture is kind of, it's one of these gray words. It gets kind of institutional. Yeah. In, in a, in it a does way. feel very institutional. <laughs> and I definitely, yeah. I definitely appreciate um, in both senses of the word appreciate, like understand, but also feel good about um, the sensitivity you apply to your role in that in terms of being able to project what a community might want or the direction it might take. Um, I think, do think though sometimes it's useful for us, even if we have to stay at 10,000 foot level, um, to kind of take an overview of, of trends and projects which seem to have uh, developed a good direction and mm-hmm. ask, our, ask ourselves, you know, how do these kind of jigsaw puzzle themselves into this larger picture that may be defined as a regenerative movement or maybe it's just... Um, some kind of resonance that happens as people hear about projects and it stimulates more thinking and more conversations for them locally and stuff comes out of it. Um, but I, I do think there's some kind of value in, in taking that, that kind of larger or higher view from it. Um, even if you can't mm-hmm. see all the details on the ground. Yeah. And I definitely don't, I mean, I know for a fact that when community growth started in whatever year it was, 1973, I do not think that we ever thought that this is what it would look like in 2018. And I hope that 
there are some ways in which I hope that there are these core aspects that will continue into the future, but I also know that it's going to be a huge surprise. Yeah, um, uh, that's lovely. And that feels exciting. And, and what do you think about yourself? Like, can is there something that's kind of calling to you in terms of a next, uh, a next level or a next exploration or going diving deeper where you are? Or it's what do you what are you imagining? Wow, that's such, I often think like, what would I do if I didn't do this? Um, but I really, I'm not sure exactly where I see myself, but I, it's hard for me to imagine myself outside of some kind of agriculture um, and outside of some kind of agriculture that is at least somewhat community oriented. Um, but my hope is that is, I mean, as a white person who is not from this neighborhood is to put myself out of business. Um, so I really hope to be able to, as much as I want to keep working in this work, um, there is a much larger part of me that hopes that my role will someday be filled by one of my students. Um, and that feels really exciting to me. So I don't know. I'm not sure sort of where I fit in all of this. And that's certainly a question that I ask myself a lot. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine not at least being able to touch one plant a day. <laughs> Um, next question. Do you perceive from, from the work you've been doing and keeping it within the context of the projects you're working on, are there particularly difficult, um, I don't know if they might be policy situations or, or a lack of communication maybe between the project and, the city or uh, are there roadblocks or bottlenecks in there that you'd really like to see dissolved and that would release a whole lot more positivity and, and potential? <laughs> um, Cause, wow, cause, that's I mean, a you, big question. <laughs> well, you're dealing with complexity, you know, you're dealing with all, all the yeah. complexity that, that comes from being in a dense city with lots of interests, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, if I could wave a magic wand, um, the thing that I really wish um, for San Francisco specifically um, is for the, if it were possible for the cost of housing and the cost of land to be lower, I think that would open a lot of doors for us and for a lot of people who live in the community. Um, I think the thing that I really worry about is whether to what extent will this community look the way that it looks now in 20 years? Um, and how can we create a resilient fabric for a way for people to live here that feels sustainable, um, whether that is affordable housing or just trying to at least set aside parcels of land that aren't gonna be housing. I mean, it's both, <laughs> like part of me is like, yes, we need more housing. And the other part of me is like, I would hate for the city of San Francisco to just only become a place of housing with no green space at all. Um, and trying to make sure that there are still going to be these parks and these places that people can go and experience nature in this city. Um, San Francisco has been great in terms of policy initiatives around um, the ability to have chickens and the ability to grow food on either public or private land. Um, and I think that that's been really wonderful and I would hope for that to continue in, a, in the direction of making it easier for folks to grow food wherever they would like to. Um, so a lot of so that's policy. It's, it's a both and, yeah. Policy in there. A lot of that comes down to city policy, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that housing is just a huge one. Um, it's just both in terms of like making sure that there's places for people to live and also in terms of making sure that that's not the only thing that has value. Yeah, well, it's it's maybe too small and a misleading slice of a larger pie. Yeah. Can, yeah the, the, the community vitality, you know, includes covering people's needs to live places, but also understands that while they're living there, they need fresh air and green space and exercise and room to stretch yeah, their arms, the you know? Make it, yeah. The things that make places great places to live are, I mean, I think our access to those things. Um, yeah. Those are the things that I think keep us healthy. And I think science, a lot of science would agree with me there. <laughs> well, and they're, they're, they become the commons, you know, they're, that's, that's the place yeah. where, where we, we get to share and have unexpected positive encounters with people. Um, mm -hmm. All the sorts of things that happen that can happen in public space, but you're not going to happen you yeah. know, within, within the walls of your housing unit. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up fairly soon. Um, is there is there anything else that before we end the the conversation that you really want to uh, say about the project or any any events coming up that people should know about? Um, um, I'm trying. I, I'm trying to think. Um, I would just say that we are deeply appreciative of everybody who's helped make our work possible um, from the financial to the personal. Um, and that to us, it is so wonderful that there are so many people who are invested in the work that we do and we appreciate that so much. Um, and that if, um, if our work is ever going in a direction that does not serve the needs of the community, that I hope that folks will speak out and let us know. Um, and that we hope to be able to continue to, to do what's right for the most number of people, uh, whatever that might look like. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and infusing this conversation with so much enthusiasm. I've been speaking with, yeah. Anna, I've been speaking with Anna Luberoff from Community Grows uh, in San Francisco. And if you're as excited as, I've, as I have become about the work they're doing, <laughs> go have a look at communitygrows.org and um, maybe sign yourself up as a volunteer and go pitch in on one of the projects. Uh, thank you so much, Anna, and um, we'll be talking more, I'm sure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, you letting me ramble about this thing that I love so much. So thank you. <laughs> that was a great ramble. Okay, take care. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore 
H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.